0: Good morning. Please turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 we'll be reading. And as the children dismiss to their program practice, we bless them. Also, let you know our bookstall director said they have more scriptural scripture journals for Revelation if you want one, and our coordinator for Operation Shoebox, Operation Christmas Child said that next Sunday your shoeboxes are due. So you want to plug into that if you're if you're going to plug into that, you want to get that done by next Sunday. Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven. While you're finding your place there, I'll just just offer this by way of of introduction. Um, I remember working with a. With a fellow church leader. Uh, It's probably been 15 years ago now, something like that, maybe 12 to 15 years. And he said to me uh, in a juncture of discussing the church and the direction of the church, he said, uh, just make sure that you love us and the people know that you love us. It was a pretty Uh, Apt word for me at the time, to be honest. I've thought about it many times over. You know, there's those times in your lives when somebody says something to you and it's like apples of gold. It's an apt word, it's well timed. Um, You know, the implied question was, Do do you love us? Is there tangible evidence that you love us? You know, Uh, Dan Doriani uh, wrote on this and, and he did a little podcast teaching recently where he talked about the roles of leaders in the church as prophet, priest, and king. And you may recall from last week's sermon in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, that the Son in glory fulfills all three of those offices, priest, king, and prophet, the threefold office of the coming Messiah. Jesus perfectly fills them all. The Son in glory does that. But none of us do as believers, as church members, let alone as leaders in the church, as, as elders in the church, uh, we don't fulfill any of those offices, so each of us is kind of prone toward one of the three or two of the three. You know, you, you might be more kingly in your planning and more priestly in your partnership with the people and, and your withness of the people. You might be more prophetic in terms of speaking the prophetic word of preaching. Uh, everybody has their thing, whether they're more of a teacher, or they're more of a with the people, more of a planner. If I can just come up with the right program, if I can just come up with the right plan, everything will be okay. Um so we all have to watch out that, like Martin Luther said, uh, like that, that, drunk pr- that drunk peasant, that we don't, when set back up the horse on the horse after we've fallen off on one side, we don't fall off on the other. Uh, because that's kind of uh, was a famous uh, illustration attributed to Martin Luther is that the trouble is with a peasant that's drunk is if he's riding his horse and he falls off on the one side, you set him back up, he'll wind up falling off on the other side. Uh, If we fall off on the one side of, I just want to be with the people, I just want to be with the people, what about understanding the Word and applying the Word and teaching the Word? But if we get so hung hung up on doctrine, which is a great thing to be hung up on, that we withdraw ourselves to the ivory towers of our little learnings and we, we don't see the necessity of life on life with the people, of the love of the people, of the griminess and the messiness of doing life with people, well, we've missed a critical aspect of what Christ is redeeming us from and for. So there are these, extreme, these extremes that we go to, and, we, and, and this sort of introduces, similar to how I introduced the sermon last week, these extremes that we go to, and it's not because God doesn't, God's not extremes, it's we are in our sin-stricken condition, and, and we, we can't balance these things. So I th- actually think, as I've been meditating on the sermon this week, I don't really think it's about a balance at all. Just by way of introduction, I don't think it's about balancing between these different aspects of how we live in light of who Christ is and His perfection and our pursuit of sanctification. I don't really think it's about a balance at all. I don't think we're capable of balancing this thing in this life. I don't think I'm capable. I don't think you're capable. I don't think we're capable. I think we're always going to be, well, I'm going to get the teaching right, and then we forget about the people. Or, well, I'm going to be with the people, but then we sort of squish on certain aspects of the teaching. Or, well, I've got this great plan, but we forget about the people. There's these kind of these polarities and these extremes that we go to because we, we are in this human condition. So I would say instead of instead of seeking a balance, why don't we just throw ourselves at the mercy seat of Christ and just do life wide open? And when he corrects us, instead of being all prickly about it, why don't we just accept it and say, oh, glory to God. He saw fit to open my eyes to that correction, and I'll, I'll correct that. I'll probably get it wrong on the other side in, in five or ten years, and I'll need to correct it over there. So I'm kind of trying to ease our mind into the theme of this text with this musing that I'm doing. I hope that it makes sense here in a moment. Let's read Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. So let's, let's look at this, this text in its first verse. Christ holds and walks among his churches. He gives His churches written communication, and that communication is to be read aloud, it's to be understood, it's to be applied to the praise of His glory. Christ's toughness with the churches is matched with a tenderness for the people in the churches. The picture of the Son in glory from chapter 1 is in view in each of these seven letters. I want to share something with you from a man by the name of Greg. He wrote a commentary I'm going to share something that he wrote. I think it will be helpful to you in in, in looking at this text in these seven letters. Remember, there are seven letters. And so we begin with the church at Ephesus, but we run through the church at Smyrna and Pergamum and, and Thyatira, you'll see. In fact, Thyatira seems to have the opposite problem as the church of Ephesus. Listen to what he writes. He says, and what a way to teach church history, by the way, when he writes this. He says, presenting a panorama of the age of the church, he says, on, this, on, the, on the view of the churches, the historicist view and the futurist view of the church, you may remember historicist, futurist, preterist, and, and idealist from the first sermon we did in this series. If not, I'd reference you back to that. But he writes, On the view of the historicist, the letter to Ephesus is said to describe the church during the apostolic age until about A.D. 100. Smyrna, the church enduring persecution, is likened to the church from about 100 to 313, which suffered under a series of Roman emperors. Pergamos is a church comprised with carnality and false doctrine, much as the church became from Constantine's edict of toleration in 313 AD until the rise of the papacy around 600. Thyatira is seen as the Papal Church until the Reformation from about 600 to 1500, and Sardis as the church during the Reformation itself, from about 1500 to 1700. Philadelphia is regarded as corresponding to a church that experienced a resurgence of missionary activity from 1700 to present, followed by the Laodicean Church, which was lukewarm and likened to the liberal churches of modern times. I thought that was pretty neat, and I completely don't agree with it. I mean, I don't actually think that the churches represent ages in the church. So that's just to kind of show you there. I don't agree with it. But I thought it was a very interesting way to teach church history. So if you want to learn church history, which is a good thing, you can learn it through the historicist interpretation of Revelation 2 and 3. There are seven letters. And remember I told you last week, it starts at Ephesus, and it forms kind of a horseshoe all the way over to Laodicea, sort of like a horseshoe up and around. Ephesus would have been closest to the sea in Asia Minor, which is modern-day western Turkey. It would have formed kind of a horseshoe. And a courier would have carried this letter from... John, John wrote it down on the island of Patmos, which was out at sea. It would, this letter would have been carried to the churches to encourage the churches. and It would have been carried first to Ephesus and then all the way around. So when we look at these letters, they are letters within an apocalyptic prophecy in Revelation, from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamos to Thyatira to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And each of these letters holds teachings for our churches at different times. And each of these letters holds teachings for each of us, that we might be commended and corrected and comforted. In fact, Christ communicates to us His commendation, His correction, and His comfort in each one of these letters. And that'll be our outline, at least for this week. I haven't worked on next week yet. But Christ communicates to us His commendation, verses 2 and 3, His correction, verses 4 and 5, and then His comfort, verse 7. And we'll throw verse 6 into point 2 and verse 1 into point 3, but so on and so forth. Christ communicates to his church, to us, his commendation, number one, his correction, number two, and his comfort, number three. So, so listen today to Christ, and you'll find joy for your current labor, perspective on what needs to be improved, and you'll find a fantastic future hope. So these three things, commendation, correction, and comfort. The first one, commendation. First, Christ communicates to us his commendation, the things that we do well, and here's, here's what he does. He does it in verses 2 and 3. So let's look at that again. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown Weary. So verses 2 and 3, he gives them a, a, a commendation, and kind of 6 goes with it. If you want to leapfrog over verses 4 and 5, 6 kind of goes with it. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I have the hardest time pronouncing Nicolaitans. It's Nicolaitans. There's two different vowels there that's supposed to be pronounced. Like I'm just going to say Nicolaitans, and you guys can correct me later, which I also hate. So this kind of divine hate on display in verse 6. He hates the works of Nicolaitans, and that goes with verses 2. And three. So uh, th- if this fits, if you're the type of person that needs the, the correction that's going to come in verses four and five, this sermon is very apt in the fact that it gives you a sort of a praise sandwich. What's, what's being said here is if you think of a praise sandwich in, in terms of business, what uh, oftentimes an employer will give, and good parents will do this, anybody in benevolent authority will do this, they'll tell you in a performance evaluation or a player evaluation for a team or something like that, they'll generally tell you something that you do well. And, and then they'll end with something that you do well, and kind of in the middle, they'll give you uh, something you can work on, like a correction. And that, that's that's kind of the way that we're laying out this sermon, but it's also the way that this text is laid out. It, it kind of gives you the correction in the middle of it. Now, the trouble with performance evaluations is, in our, in our carnality, in our fallen human condition, we only ever remember the middle of the sandwich, right? We only ever remember the correction. At least that's what sticks out in our mind. I can't believe I got corrected. I can't, I'm such a perfect employee. Who could possibly tell me something I need to work on? Right, and the six or eight or ten or twelve employers in the room are like, "Yeah, right. You you're not perfect. You know that position of perfection was taken 2,000 years ago. You don't have it. Uh, You're on the way, but you're not there. You need correction. But for those of us that are taking the correction, it's hard to take. It could be hard to take. But it's a blessing to have people in your lives that formatively and from time to time, correctively offer correction. They they offer a kind of correction in your life that makes your life better. In fact, I would even say a performance evaluation." is designed, if, if it's done right, it's designed to enrich the life of the subordinate, of the employee, of the child, of the what, of the player, whatever, whatever organization, however it is. It's designed to, to enrich the life of the person that's receiving the performance evaluation. We don't look at it that way, do we? When we get performance evaluations, we're like, oh no, what am I going to get this time? But if it's done right, if it's done right, it's actually designed to enrich the life of the employee, the player, the child, whatever the case may be. And I'm not saying you have like performance evaluations with your kids, like, "Hey, today's performance evaluation day." You know, that's I don't know that that's it, but all of good, all of parenting, in a sense, is performance evaluation. It's like, "Hey, son, you know, we need to do that this way," or "Hey, daughter, you know, let's do it this way." That that's sort of what it is. So I think that's what's going on here. And in our first point, Christ communicates to us His commendation for the church or the persons that best fit the profile of the late 1st century church in Ephesus. So let me just take a moment to explain the church at Ephesus so you know whether or not you fit this profile for this commendation and what follows. I'm just going to share. I can't say it any better than John MacArthur, so I'm just going to say this. He said that Ephesus was an inland city three miles from sea on the, on the broad mouth of the Caister River. It allowed access and provided great harbor in Asia Minor. So there were great trade coasts through Ephesus, and it became known as the gateway to Asia. So it was the center of the worship of Artemis, or Diana, whose temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Paul actually ministered there for three years after having planted the church in the A.D. 50s. And he later met famously with the Ephesian elders on his way to Jerusalem. You can read about it in Acts chapter 20. Timothy, Tychicus, and the Apostle John all served this church. So it's kind of a, a, a who's who of well-known Bible teachers went through Ephesus. There's a, a book in the New Testament written to the Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus. Now we have this letter within the Revelation to Ephesus. We have the pastoral epistles written to Ephesus through Timothy. So Ephesus is a church that has been well endowed with sound doctrine and teaching, wouldn't you agree? Finally, they get the apostle John in Ephesus before he's arrested by Emperor Domitian and exiled 50 miles southwest to the island of Patmos. So that's kind of the town of Ephesus. This is a town that knows truth from lie in their church. Now, the town itself does not, but the church does. The church has had to be tough because the town around them was very paganistic, very idolatrous, very immoral. The priestesses in the temple were... Cult prostitutes. It's a very immoral place. It's a very affluent place. Of all the seven churches in the Horseshoe, Ephesus had the most money. It wasn't the city center, but it had the most money. The ships came in and out, naval type things. This was a very it was a very well endowed city. Now, the church had to be strong in order to stand against the temptations. And unlike Thyatira, it seems that they were. Listen to the commendation that Christ gives the church at Ephesus and that he really gives to anybody like this, anybody that's strong on doctrine, that rightly divides the word of truth and seeks to live it out, that's that's tough in the face of Nicolaitans. Listen to what he says. He says, I know your works. I know. It's a strong phrase, right? I know. I know. I see those blazing eyes from Revelation 1. I see to the deepest inyards of you. I know. Your works, none of us can hide. Jesus knows. He sees, He sees. And what does he see that he commends? Well, he sees toil, impatient endurance, it says. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. So truth from false, willing to call them out, not bearing with the works of the Nicolaitans. In fact, despising or hating the Nicolaitans. That's just strong language, isn't it? I mean, the only word in the English language that we hate is hate. It's The only word we hate is hate. This is like a divinely authorized hate. And you you sort of think to yourself, well, what what is this that the Nicolaitans did? Well, look down at chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. We'll get into this at the church at Pergamum in a few weeks, but let's just quickly hit it down. It says, I have a few things against you, he said to that church. You have some there who hold of the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, and then he calls them to repent. So whatever the teachings were, they're bad. They seem to embrace idolatry and immorality. It causes the professing people of God to trip up, like in the Old Testament, with this description of how Israel was tripped up by the Moabite Daughters, they were tripped up into worshiping idols and practicing sexual immorality, and also these sort of like a golden calf type experience where Moses is on the mountain and, and Aaron leads this melee of sin and this terrible stuff that's going on at the foot of the mountain. So what we have here is unfaithful Christianity because the truth is being marginalized, pressed to the side, and I'm sure these people would have thought of themselves as quite affectionate and loving people. I mean, they might have saying, all we need is love, love. But they wouldn't have defined love the way that God, that divine love is supposed to be defined, which would include truth, truth and love, both and, not either or. There's no distinction between the two in the Godhead, but there is with us because we sin. And so we must be reminded that there's truth in love, there's love in truth, that God is love, that the Lord Jesus is truth, that we see truth and love as equally valuable, if we must look at it in such a way. So... He commends them here. Look how else he commends them. He commends them, I guess to use just some basic words, he commends them for their discernment with regard to the Nicolaitans, with regard to the false apostles, the false teachers. He commends them for their their toil. They haven't worn out. They haven't grown weary of doing good. He commends them for their teaching. Their teaching is solid. They have been endowed with a who's who list of of famous teachers and terms of biblical Christianity, New Testament Christianity. Uh, So they they have had all this. And and in a town like Ephesus, they have endured patiently in this doctrine. They have maybe the third generation now, after the AD 50s, if it's the AD 90s, at least the second, third generation, they have kept the faith. They have fought that fight. They have maybe a wartime mentality, a certain... Toughness, Galatians 6, 7 through 10, tells us to not grow weary of doing good. I'll read that cross-reference right fast. It's apt here. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. Same construction, not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So do good to everybody, but especially to the church, to the household of faith. And so these are people that didn't grow weary. They're commended for it. Perhaps you fit this profile. They're commended for calling out false teachers, for their discernment, for staying with strong teaching, for enduring. They're hard workers. These aren't people who just come to church for the entertainment. I mean, these people are workers in the church. They're coming for the vertical worship that we're calling for. They're coming for the worship of God. There's a sobriety. They will not allow melding pot of Christian behaviors from the world. They won't embrace the worship practices of the world. It's all about what the Word of God says. So this is many things to commend the church at Ephesus for. And perhaps that's you. I mean, we've gone through a kind of theological purity pursuit. And we've sought sound doctrine. But there is an edge to this, another side to this, that we could, we could literally fall off the horse like the peasant drunk on the other side. We could miss it. And it's not really about balancing, I don't think, as it's so much as understanding our proclivity to sin and kind of whenever we recognize it, repenting of it. You know, Like when we recognize we're sinning, make, we actually repent of it. Uh, instead of trying to balance it, we just know we're going to get it wrong sometimes and let's, let's make repentance great again. Let's make it famous again. Let's put it back on the map in our church. Um, So here's what we need to repent of if we're like this, if we're a church like this. Here is the correction. Here it comes in all of its glory, verse 4. But I have this against you, Jesus says to this type of church, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And so you have to stop before you go any further. You can't really apply that until you define that. What is the love that you had at first. Well, if you don't know, you're in good company. As a matter of fact, Pastor Kurt and I were talking about this this last week as we were preparing the service order for this week and we're sort of like throwing things around and seeing what sticks. And we were sort of sure that we weren't sure. So I read all the commentators that I had on it and they're sort of not sure either. And then I got to thinking about it kind of carefully. Like, what does it mean to abandon the love you had at first or your first love? I mean, I looked at the construction of it in Greek and I thought about it and I read people's stuff. And and there's some really good assertions for what it might be specifically. I mean, it could be that your love for the Lord has grown cold, so your worship is kind of insincere. It's it's not heartfelt. And so get back to the heart of worship. That's that's true enough. And not far from your love for the Lord in your authentic worship is your love for your neighbor, right? You're supposed to love others. as a, That's how we know that we love the Lord is we love one another. Uh, John 13, 34, and 35, we have to love one another if we're going to be showing the world the love of Christ, and so it might be your love for one another in the membership. It might be your showing Christ to the world. Maybe you've gone, you've lost your love for the lost. You've gotten jaded and, and maybe bitter, and you've gotten kind of calloused and hardened to the point that you just really don't care about uh, ministry here or mission there. But that's all maybe in bounds. It could be any of those things. The fact of the matter is, what we can deduce to, for, induce from this is that the internal... Love was not matching the external doctrine. The, the the internal, heartfeltness, the affection was not matching the external purity of the teaching. Now, I don't think it's as simple as the internal external divide though, and here's why: he, they are commanded to return to the works that they did at first. You see that? Now, in being commanded to returning to the works, we can't simply deduce that it's just a matter of doing the same things with a better heart. They're actually needing to do works that they're not doing. They're actually needing to get they're actually needing to backtrack and get back to a place where they're doing a certain kind of love-based work. So it may be that they've stopped preaching against abortion. It may be that they've stopped seeing who needs help in the poverty section and giving them help it may be that they've stopped going on mission trips it may be that they've you fill in the blank it may be that they've stopped identifying the widows in the church and gone to help going to help and encourage the widows it may be that they've maybe you could fill in the blank but this actually gets at what i think's going on in this text it's a theory i have but it's as good as any of the other commentators because nobody knows what's going on here's what i think it's kind of like the thorn in paul's flesh from 2 corinthians 12 do you remember that Everybody goes on and on about what the thorn in Paul, the Apostle Paul's flesh was. And then we go back and say, we don't really know. He just had a thorn in his flesh, right? We have all these theories. Well, one of the things that I saw in studying that text that I think applies here is, in losing your first love or a thorn in your flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, it's easier for you to apply if it isn't so clearly defined. So I'll just turn it on you. You know, if I was preaching 2 Corinthians 12, I might say, well, what is the thorn in your flesh that the Lord hasn't seen fit to take away? You just have to live with it. You just have to abide. Well, I'll ask it here. If, if this is you, if the Lord's ministering to you through this text, what, what is the love that you had at first that you don't have now? What works commensurate with that love have you lost? What's, what's cold in you that if you were laid bare before your brethren the way that you are laid bare before the Lord, you would have to admit and own up to, I don't love the way that I did at first. Now, if you can define that, you're well on your way to being blessed by this text, being blessed by this writing from our Lord. Can you define that this morning? If, if this fits you, this may not be your issue. One of, these, one of these letters will hit you. I'm sure of that. Sure of that. But if this hits you, and I especially want to say, it might need to hit you if you have been a Christian long enough to get kind of comfortable in your Christianity. You just kind of settled in, sunk into it. For those of us that have been around a while, our blind spot of lovelessness, it's the easiest thing to overlook. It just is. And I'm not trying to pound tender consciences and you know, I'm not trying to get you to question your salvation because your love isn't as hot today as it was 10 days ago. That's not it. I'm saying look at space and say, can you quantify where your love's grown cold? Because the beauty of this, now there's real consequences for you refusing to quantify where your love's grown cold. and he, that's, that's in this text, we may read it again in a second. But the beauty of this is, this is real letter written to real people in real churches. It's an opportunity for you to repent of known sin of losing love for the things of Christ, the people of Christ. If you've lost the heart of Christ in your work, go back to it. Get back, get back, get off the train, get on a different route, go back to the place you got off and 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 go again. One more thing about this uncertainty of what it means to lose your your first love. I I just I just want to say it's so important that we're welcoming of new converts in the church. It's so important. Because new converts in the church, they're they're so excited about the Lord and they're generally so correctable. That they will remind us of the great love that Jesus has for us and the great miracle work of salvation. Like we we can kind of lose touch with the fact that we really shouldn't be saved. Like we're saved because of what Jesus did for us. Like we really, we really, there's nothing we did to get there. Nothing to the cross do we bring. It's all about his finished work on our behalf. It's a sheer act of mercy and grace for us that we're saved. And we get back to that when we get back to the love that we had at first. Whatever that means for you, specifically for you. This is the profile of the correctable. This is the profile of how to accept correction where you need it. And if you need it in this place, this this vagary about what it means to lose your first love, it may be for you that you can see then how to apply it. So if you've defined it, how do you apply this second part of this sermon? this correction. You've been commended. You have this correction. How do you apply this correction? Well, it's embedded in the text. Look again at chapter 2, verse 5. He's told to return to the love you had at first, but here's how he's told. There's three imperative verbs. Remember, repent, and do. But I'll just say redo to stick with the alliteration because I'm a Baptist preacher. So, remember, repent, redo. So, see that afresh. It says, remember, which comes from the Greek word that kind of sounds like a mnemonic device. It it kind of sounds like work hard at remembering where you come from. Remember, therefore, therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Okay, so get, get the assessment of it, which we've already been working on. Then repent, repent of where you've sinned. By the way, this loss of love is a sin to be repented of. This is a problem with us truth people. Like, we, we live on the ledger sheet of assets and liabilities. Like, I, did, I believe the right thing, I, I didn't embrace the wrong thing. I believe the right thing, I didn't embrace the wrong thing. This actually is too a sin to be repented of. The Lord Jesus gives perhaps his strongest consequence language to these toughest Christians that have lost their, their love that they had at first. He, he says to them, here, I, I will extinguish your lampstand unless you repent. I mean, these people have checked the boxes of behavior and belief based Christianity. They've checked them all. They are orthodox in these ways. They can prove it. It's, it's actually Jesus seeds the ground, right? He's already seeded the ground. And he says, Yet I have this against you. And he says, This is such a sin to repent for that if you do not, your church won't keep its lampstand there in Ephesus. Now, we think they repented, by the way, because we see in church history the Ephesian church had quite an impact in the church in the 2nd century and beyond. In fact, there was an important council held at the church at Ephesus in AD 431. And so we think that they had a witness. Now, eventually, with the fall of the Roman Empire, we know from church history eventually this area became fairly... uh, Today, it's 99% Muslim. So eventually, that that witness. I think there's a there's a evidence of a church a few towns over from where the church at Ephesus was, but not necessarily in in what we would consider Ephesus today in terms of the geography. You can track that down if you'd like. So I don't really know exactly. I can't really apply. I don't think that's the point is applying this to the to the development in the Ephesian church after the first century. This was the late first century A.D. It was the problem of their day, and this right now is 2020 A.D., and and this might be the problem of our day. It might be your problem. You might have checked the boxes, but what about the love? And I just say to you, the warnings here of extinguishment are there for your benefit. This is about about saying, you know what, I I am out of balance because I'm a sinner, and Jesus has graciously shown this to me. Lord, help me return to love that works, to working love. Now, I think one way that it helps, that helps me as far as remembering, just to use a personal example, and then repenting and then redoing, is, is just getting back to, if you've gotten away from uh, praying through the church directory, or getting back to like, like names and faces in your mind. Like Judy Bestie turns 80 today. It's a good reminder to pray for her. Like she's, she's not here, I'm sure. She's turned 80 today, and we have these concerns about health and whatnot. I'm sure she's home. I'm actually probably watching this. I think they watch it every Sunday. But would you pray for her? Better still, would it be a reminder for you to get into the directory and be fortuitous about how to pray for the other members? Because now you're putting faces and names and needs with people. And then come to the members' meetings. Because at the members' meetings, we talk about missionaries and ministries and we sort of give reports, and reports are only stale if they're not about real people. Like, who, who needs more help? Who needs prayer? Who needs resources? What, what can we do to see a need and meet a need? And then beyond. We can talk about ministry in the area, and we could go on and on like this, but get to the specifics of people that need to be served, and not just the etherealness of people that should be served, or somebody else to get around to doing it. What is the Lord calling you to show love that works? What does it look like for you? It's not that you need to be, you don't need to fix everybody. This is a message for me. If you, if you leave after the sermon, you say, boy, that was a really good sermon for them other ten people out there. You know? I mean, that's our tendency, right? Boy, I really wish my brother would have heard that sermon. Yeah, I really do, you know. Sorry, sister, so-and-so missed today. What about me? Like, this is for, for us, and it's serious language. Like, I don't want to trivialize it with my tone. So, so look at what it says. It says, "Remember, verse five, chapter 2, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, it's a sin to be repented of, that is lovelessness, and do the works you did at first. And he says, if not, this is a warning, I'll come to you, I'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, this is, I don't have time to teach on the perseverance of the saints and a doctrine that the saints will persevere to the end, but just to say it very simply. David Platt has a sermon where he spends like like twenty minutes on this, on this text if you want to go find it. But I'll just say very, very simply, very, very simply. The saints will persevere to the end, and the saints must persevere to the end. So we are a part of our perseverance. We're involved in it. Jesus does it, but in our sanctification, as we're persevering, we are listening to the Word and hearing from the Word. We're not, just, we're not just dependent on some emotional experience from 30 years ago. We're being corrected by the Word every step of the way, and that's part of what gives us this gracious assurance of salvation. So the joy in our salvation comes from hearing texts preached like this, by a a figure in the church, a a messenger in the church, and then responding to it with heartfelt repentance. May the Lord open our eyes and warm our hearts to this open-handedness with the correction part of our performance evaluation from Jesus. Amen? It says unless you repent, this is what's going to happen. In the praise sandwich, then he talks about the Nicolaitans again and their shared hate for them. And so first, Christ communicates To us, his commendation. These are the things you've done well with truth. Then he communicates to us, he communicates to us our correction. These are the things that need to change, particularly love. But this I have against you as the text shifts. And he says those three R's within the correction remember, repent, redo. Remember, repent, do. You're not too big to fail. Soften your heart, no jadedness, no no bitterness, not just battling, but also building up the body of Christ. It's good that you hate falsity, but with an equal vigor, you need to love authentically the tenderness of the Savior in you at work, matched with the toughness of the Savior on sound doctrine. It's uh, tend to the former without neglecting the latter, to quote Jesus when he's dealing with the religious folks of of his days. He should have done those former things while not neglecting the latter things of mercy. It's a kind of the context here or the, the similar context here, I think, with regard to how we're to apply this. And then thirdly and finally, Christ not only commends and corrects his church, but he, he communicates to us his comfort. He comforts us. And, it, and, and this is how he goes about comforting us. Listen afresh to verse seven. In fact, listen to verse one and then listen to verse seven. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, when Revelation interprets itself for you, you listen to it and apply and you interpret it that way. He's already said the seven stars are the messengers of the churches and the lampstands of the churches themselves. And so we know that. So these words from the Lord Jesus come from Jesus and he knows us. And it says here that he holds us and he walks among us. Now, that's a true praise sandwich, isn't it? A comfort sandwich, you might say. I mean, he's here. He's among his churches. And he cares deeply to comfort us, not only with his presence, but with his future visible presence of of us being together. Listen to verse 7 now. He who has an ear, he's picking up on Isaiah here. He who has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Still saying to the churches. That's why I don't go with the historicist view I read from the top of the hour because I don't think this is dictating epics in church history with the churches. I think it's saying you're going to be like each one of these from time to time. Repent whenever that thing pops up. You know, repent whenever it pops up. When that shows on your performance evaluation that decade, repent of the cold love or repent of allowing false teacher in the church or repent of where your behavior isn't commensurate with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be be ever ready to repent. And here's his comfort for we repenters, we who are making repentance prolific again. He says, if you have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I'm going to come back to that word in just a moment, to the one who conquers, I will grant, I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now for your sanctified minds it's probably some some things are popping up as you hear that language, right? You're probably remembering the garden and you're thinking of a tree of life and you're, you're probably there's probably a lot of things popping up and, and we'll we'll address that right at the end. But first I want to say something about to the one who conquers, to the to the conqueror. What does it mean to be a conqueror? The Bible says in Romans we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does it mean to be a conqueror. Well, interestingly, this, this word conquer is the Greek word nike. There's a pagan goddess with this name, nike, and the tennis shoe company, Nike, gets its name from this pagan goddess, Nike or nike. So, this the root word nike is what is now used here and translated to us as conqueror or victory. And, and so, I'm not trying to make an advertising plug for Nike at all. I'm just saying. These Greek words make their way into our vocabulary. Nike, conqueror, to the one who conquers. But what are we conquering? Like, what are we nikeing? What are we being victorious over? It sure doesn't seem like we're being victorious in this particular epoch as the church. We're being victorious by just pounding all the enemies of God into submission with our bare fists, right? I mean, what is it? What is it we're conquering, really? Loveless Christianity. What is that? That's personal sin. That's a pattern of sin that's socially acceptable within the membership of the church. So you're telling me that this whole war is about defeating our sins? I think Jesus is telling us that. I think that's what He's saying. Faith is your victory, as the song says. By faith fighting the good fight, we will finish the race, and as we are conquering, what we are actually conquering in the main is those besetting sins that we have. We name them, we claim them, and we kill them. That's what it means to conquer. It's about our sins. He's addressing the internal needs of the church all the way through here. He's also comforting them with their persecution, and we will get to that. But these letters are about where the church is to be commended and where the church needs to be corrected. And he gives them a sanctified, divine performance evaluation. And he gives it to them, but he gives it for us as well. The English Standard Version Study Bible has this line in it. It says, The city's landmark... Ephesus' landmark was the Temple of Artemis, and one of its symbols was the date palm tree. And so one might want to contrast the date palm tree with the tree of life. Doug O'Donnell says, More than theological watchmen, this conquers by considering others more important than themselves. The slain lamb is our role model, and his victory formation is on a tree. It's on the cross. His victory celebration takes us to another tree. The one who conquers I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. The story, the Garden of Eden, the tree of life, now the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eat from the second tree. They would die physically and spiritually separated from God but they were banished lest they eat from that tree of life and live forever. Now we, I'm sorry, we can now eat from that second tree in the paradise. Paradise was lost in the beginning. It's regained in Revelation. Thousands of years later, we have this second Adam born east of Eden, as is described in First Corinthians 15 and in Romans chapter 5. And this second or last Adam, unlike the first Adam that put us on a track to sin by eating from that tree, puts us on a track saved to sin no more so that in the, the new garden, the second garden, the new Jerusalem, we will forevermore be able to eat of the tree of life without sinning. What the first Adam could not do by his action, the second Adam did by his death. He died to conquer death. And when he's on that tree conquering death by his own death, he promised a repentant sinner on the cross next to him, a thief, a petty thief. He promised that man that he would be in a garden he would be in paradise with him at that very day after their death. This second Adam, Jesus, is the hope of eternity for all of us. And Romans, 22, Romans ends, in, ends in chapter 22 with a depiction of heaven like a garden, like a, para, a paradise regained that was once lost. So listen and salivate as you hear these words. and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is where we're headed. This is the comfort we have. You can take the performance evaluation now. You don't have to be prickly about it. You can get over yourself, and you can repent of your sin and walk with Jesus because he's taking you to a wonderful place for all of eternity. It is true that Christ communicates to us his correction alongside commendation, but he also communicates to us comfort. Listen to Christ today, and the benefit will be joy in your current labor, and it will be a fantastic future hope of joy for all of eternity. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. This text that corrects me. This text corrects many in my hearing. For where our love is not warm, where we have been loveless, help us to return to works filled with love. Help us to know how to apply this text to our lives and to be obedient to do so. And where we need to repent, Lord, Give us the humility to do so. This is especially hard for strong, tough men and women in the faith, seasoned saints. But Lord, I believe in your power to penetrate the most hard person in this room and to warm them back up with your gospel. Please do it. In Jesus' name, amen.